0: Welcome to The Backstory, I'm your host Colby
1: Cole And today's guest on this episode is someone who is just an amazing, creative A brilliant person who doesn't have to do this music stuff He's a super smart, and he was able to stream billions of streams He is an EGOT winner, which means he has an Emmy, two of them A Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Legend Hello, Mr. Legend Kobe Kobe, my man. Wow. You really, like, you you were John Stevens back in the day, right? But you really living up to the legend. <laughs> I mean, did you ever think, like, EGOT, like, I mean, did you even know what that was? I what
2: didn't know was, what it was, was for a long time. And then uh, when I got closer to it, people were like, you know, you're pretty close to EGOT. And so that's when I started to realize what it was. And uh, I had the Grammy and the Oscar and the Tony after we won... Uh, you know, for Jitney, which was a play we produced on Broadway. And then we won the Oscar for uh, Glory. Glory, a song we wrote for Selma. So all that was left was the Emmy. And NBC called me up and asked me to be part of a Jesus Christ Superstar uh, production that they were going to do live on uh, national television. And we got an Emmy for that. And uh, that was the last last one I needed. And wow. I got it with... Uh, Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber and Sir Tim Rice, who both uh, wrote uh, Jesus Christ Superstar and a bunch of other very successful Broadway musicals. We all got the EGOT that same night on the same award for winning uh, for Jesus Christ Superstar.
1: And so many people like, covet that? Because the Oscar is the hardest part. The winning an Oscar is like getting struck. Well, it
2: depends on who you are, you know. Uh, For some people, the Grammy's the hardest part because, you know, they don't work in the music business. Right, that's true. Uh, And so the only way they could get one is if they, you know, maybe released an audio book or made an album or something like that. And so uh, for me, though, you know, uh, the Oscar and the Tony seemed the most out of reach. The Emmy did, too, though, for that matter. But luckily, there's music awards for the uh, Oscar, So I was able to get that by being a part of uh, Ava DuVernay's uh, Selma film. And then our production company uh, is the reason I got the Emmy and the Tony, because we produced that Jesus Christ Superstar and we produced Jitney for Broadway. So both of those were the reasons I got uh, uh, the the production company was the reason I got those last two.
1: Well, that's that's really cool, man. I'm sure growing up in uh, in Ohio, like just, you know, having dreams and visions of, of, I, I, well, let me ask you: what, what were you? Did you grow up and be like, "I want to be a professional singer"? Because you were like, a oh, yeah. smart kid."
2: Well, I grew up wanting to do a lot of things, but I grew up in a very musical family, and so we loved music. We had it, you know, playing throughout the house all the time. We were uh, we had a piano and a drum set at our house. We were in church all the time. My grandfather was a pastor. My grandmother was the church organist. My mom directed the choir. My dad played the drums and sang in the choir, too. So everybody in my family was involved in the church and also in the music of the church in some way. And so I just was so surrounded by music all the time. And I loved it. I wanted to take piano lessons very early on. I started taking them when I was four. And then I started singing them in the church choir when I was seven. And, yeah, I would watch Star Search, and and, i watched the Grammys, I'd watch Soul Train, you know, I would see these artists out there doing their thing, making music for a living, and I wanted to do it. But I also was, you know, a smart kid, I got great grades, I skipped a couple grades, went to Ivy League school, which is how I uh, spent so much time in Philadelphia uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. But music was always my first love. And everything else was like a backup plan.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, what was great is that you like you are every parent's dream. It's like (laughs) you got your education. Yeah. Everything perfect. I mean, I think you would have was Morehouse, Harvard, Georgetown. Yeah, I got accepted
2: into all those places and then decided to go to Penn. It was the perfect combination of I think the location was great for me because I grew up in Ohio. So I didn't want to be too far from home. And then the financial aid offer was the best for me. And obviously, Penn is a great school. And what I didn't realize when I was deciding to go to Penn was how important musically Philadelphia would be for me. Because once I got there, I just realized, wow, this is such a great musical city. And there were so many jam sessions and and other musicians. Most of my band now is from Philadelphia. Wow! A lot of my early collaborators were from Philadelphia. And just being in such a soulful musical city was such a bonus for me of being at Penn. And it really meant a lot, especially during that time. If you think about the late 90s, all the things that were happening in the Philadelphia music scene. We talk a lot about Neo Soul, or we did. And Philly was really the, the hub for a lot of that. Music, and that was the time period when I was in school there. So it was very important for me to be in that city at that time because it was inspiring. It it connected me with a lot of other musicians. And uh, I don't know if I would have pursued my dreams in the way that I did without having spent that time in Philadelphia.
1: So you were at uh, Black Lily a lot. Did you get a chance to do that?
2: I did. I did go to Black Lily a lot. And, you know, I was unknown at the time. So I was just like kind of hanging out. Yeah. And watching, you know, Jill and Jaguar and Bilal and Amir and, you know, Tariq, everybody, James Poyser, Common would come through, Erica would come through, all these artists would come through, D'Angelo, and there was just so much great music happening in Philly during that time.
0: Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclib two hundred milligrams at KISQALI dot and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
1: So while you were in college, someone introduced you to Lauren Hill. So tell a little bit about that, because Lauren Hill was coming off her amazing classic debut album. And you're like a college student that uh, loves to perform music and you meet Lauryn Hill. What was that about?
2: Yeah. So if you go back to 96, uh, the score came out, we were at Penn during that time and everybody was listening to Killing Me Softly and the whole album. And even we had the Fugees play Penn Relays concert, I think that year. And A a side fact, Jay-Z opened for them. uh, That was during Reasonable Doubt era. And he was a pretty unknown guy. And the fans were like, "Ah, who's this cat? Uh, And they were like, get us to the Fugees. We we just want to get to the Fugees. But anyway, so the the score had blown up. And then everybody was anticipating their solo album. So Wyclef was going to make the carnival. And and, uh, Lauren was going to make Miseducation. And I was playing at a church up in uh, Scranton. So I would drive back and forth on the weekend up to Scranton and direct the choir and play at this church. And one of my choir members, her name was Tara Michelle, and she had grown up both in Jersey and in Scranton. And she went to school with uh, Lauren. And so she knew her well, she was a singer and Lauren was, you know, gathering her friends together in this basement studio in Jersey, working on the Miseducation album. And she invited Tara to come by and Tara was like, you want to come with me? And and I wow. drove her basically from Scranton to Jersey uh, outside of Newark. They were working on everything is everything. So I was just chilling there and watching them work. A lot of the, you know, musicians in there, Rohan was there, every, you know, a lot of her crew was there. And, um, we had a break when they were, weren't writing for a little bit. And, uh, Tara was like, Johnny, you got to get on the piano and show her what you can do. So I get on the piano and play a couple songs. And uh, she asked me to play piano on the track they were working on then. So I just learned it real quick and uh, play piano on everything is everything. And uh, that was the first time I was ever part of a major recording. So that was in, you know, 98, spring of 98. That was a pretty
1: big deal, uh, John. I I- yeah, it was a big deal.
2: I was excited. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I you
1: know, our ancestors will be talking about that album. You know that, right? That's one that of That album,
2: movies. you know, changed everybody's life. It it just yeah. changed music. And obviously, it was so beloved by so many people, especially people that love hip-hop and soul music and the way she fused it together so beautifully, uh, reggae too, just all of that. It was just a beautiful album, and it meant so much to so many people. And I got to go back to school and tell everybody I was on it. <laughs> yeah. So what so, was that like you know, when, it,
1: when it came out? Like, it, and you hear it, but like in real time, I
2: was hype. You know, what was crazy was I didn't know if they were going to use it, you know, cause people make all kinds of records and some of them, they don't even put out. Sometimes they'll have you play something and they don't use your part. So I didn't even know if I was going to be on the album until I got a call from uh, a woman named Suzette Williams, who, who was at, uh, a at Columbia. And, uh, she reached out to me and uh, was like, uh, we need to know how to spell your name for the credits for uh, Lauren Hill's album. Wow. So I was like, okay, I'm in the album. So, you know, I got a little check, $500. Wow. <laughs> and uh, got credit. And then I just told everybody, yo, I'm on track 13 of Lauren Hill's album. And, you know, I was just so excited to be part of history, really. And from that, I started to connect with other musicians. I started to work with some of the producers that were on that project, but also just other producers in Philly and New York. I graduated a year later, went to Boston for one year, but then moved to New York in 2000. And then I lived in New York most of my adult life. And that's where I really started to make all of the moves that got me to the point where I could get a record deal I met Kanye there. I met a bunch of other people that helped me along in my career, my lawyer, my manager, all kinds of other collaborators. So yeah, it it kind of got a kickstart by being on Lauryn Hill's album. So is it true that when
1: you graduated college, you got a job as a management consultant?
2: That's true. I graduated. That's why I went to Boston. I worked at a place called Boston Consulting Group one year in Boston, but they also have offices in New York. And I knew I wanted to make music happen, but Boston wasn't really the best place to do it. Whoa. And so I asked for a transfer, moved to New York, worked two more years at that firm. But that's where I really was able to connect with so many other musicians. So I'd be you know, doing spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations by day and uh, in the studio by night playing gigs around the city. We had a band. Uh, some of the musicians were from Philly, some from New York and i would play gigs you know at sobs and and uh, a bunch of clubs in new york i would come down to philly and play the five spot and uh north by northwest and a few other places wow. th- there yeah. and you know all this was happening before i got a record deal but you know yeah. it was just me building i would sell cd's out of my trunk and and uh, out of my apartment and send them send them off you know go to the post office myself and send them off to people and uh had a website and, uh, you know, I just was building, building my, you know, fan list and building my music and just trying to get a record deal. It took a while, though. I started working with Kanye in uh, 2002. And, uh, we and met this was in, when out. he was working on College Dropout, right? I mean, yeah, I was working on Get Lifted. He was working on the early, you know, versions that would eventually be College Dropout. Yeah. But th- that didn't come out till '04. So he was also just producing you know, for Jay-Z. He was on The Blueprint in uh, 2001 and, and then started to produce a lot for Rockefeller. You remember that era, that kind of sped up soul sample uh, sure. production started to really take over. Uh, him and Just Blaze were doing a lot of that. And I started working with him around then and I met him because his cousin was my roommate. So my roommate in college, a guy named Devon Harris, also ended up uh, being a roommate of mine in New York And he was like, "Yo, my cousin's moving from Chicago and he's starting to make a lot of moves as a producer and and y'all should get together and work. So we started working together, I think, late 2001, early 2002. He was working on College Dropout. I was working on Get Lifted. And then he started to give me beats for my project. And I started to sing and play and do all kinds of things on his project. And uh, and then he started to include me as well on other stuff he was producing. Once he signed me to his production company, Good Music, then he's just started to put me on with Jay-Z, put me on with Slum Village, Dilated Peoples, co-wrote something for Janet, sang background for Alicia Keys, uh, all kinds of records that Kanye was making. It was uh, You Don't Know My Name, right? You Don't Know My Name. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's classic. I was singing background on that, and uh, that was written by Alicia and Harold Lilly and Kanye. Yeah, so I was just... In on a bunch of these sessions and then still making my own record. And I finally got signed in May of 2004 through Kanye's production company, Good Music. We uh, were basically already done with the album when I got signed. I just had to finish a few things. But notably, one track that I hadn't written yet was Ordinary People. So I uh, wrote that song. After I got signed, I was in a session with Will I Am because I had the same manager as uh-huh. the black ip's at the time got in the studio with him and i had written with him before we wrote she don't have to know on my album we had written something for the black ip's before and he was just playing me a bunch of beats and seeing if i had hook ideas for the black ip's and one of the hook ideas was the chorus to ordinary people and eventually i decided i wanted to keep it for myself so i kept it for myself that was a smart move <laughs> Exactly. So I kept it for myself and um, ended up being obviously my biggest hit from my first album. And the song that really set me up to be the artist I am now. Yeah.
1: You know, I, it's interesting about you because I'm going to take you back real quick. I remember the first time I met you, we probably crossed paths in Philly and events and just didn't, mm-hmm. you know, the ships in the night. But I remember I used to do this event. I would do this Christmas party every year and I would make it free for the audience. Mm -hmm. And I was a super fan of Kanye, the white label he had sent out for uh, through the wire. And i started playing it. You know, I was one of the early people that started playing it. And I them for that Christmas party. And we had, uh, Khalees on that show. She was, she did milkshake. We had the young gunners, uh, they had can't stop, won't stop. Yep. Um, Yeah. Jaheim was on that show <laughs> and Kanye came. You came cause you were doing the keyboards with Kanye yeah. and you had Keisha Cole with him. She wasn't even like, nobody yeah. knew who she was yet. And yeah, That was my first introduction to, to John Legend. Then fast forward a year later, your album is out and we do the legendary Christmas party yeah. and it was just you and we sold it out and it was just amazing. And it was like, that was just a great progression, and I, in between there and that spring, that's when you came to the station with your keyboard and plugged yeah. in. I was doing mornings at the time, and you just started rocking live on the radio. I was like,
2: <laughs> and, I, "And I remember I, those days, man. Yeah. That we we really like we really were hustling, and you know during that that year of two thousand four, that's when Kanye's album had come out, and we toured with Usher. Keisha was with us on some of those dates too." Um, we all wrote "I Changed My Mind." Uh, I don't love you no more. The, the yeah. big song Keisha had from that first album she did, and we were on the road together. We were just out there hustling, and Kanye would have me, you know, play like "Used to Love You" in his show with Usher. But other than that, you know, that was my little moment. And other than that, was just kind of playing keys and and supporting him. And then finally, my album came out in December of two thousand four, and. I was just out there hustling, making the rounds, opening for Alicia Keys in 2005. And then I think by the end of 2005 was when uh, that legendary Christmas party you talked about happened. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that was that was that was amazing. And, uh, you know, what was great about it, too, was that you did that by yourself, because usually I would have, you know, a bunch of different people on it. But Mm -hmm. you actually held the reins by yourself and, you know, you wooed the crowd like it was (laughs) a nice. I was surprised because you know, we, we had like a little hood thing with the station, but it was a real sophisticated night. I was like, what? <laughs> who are these people like? It was just I brought out all these different people. So,
0: Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com, and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
1: Going back to that moment when you jumped on the radio station, it reminded me of a, when I was kid. I remember Luther Vandross came to Philly. I was like a little, little boy, and he sang live on the radio. And I was like wow, I never heard nobody like sing or perform live on the radio before. That was like, I think on his first album, he was doing this promotion. Where he would go in the cities and actually perform. And so here you are. I mean, this was like a, the Rockefeller era. Like we were playing all this Jay-Z, East Coast, like, you know, the, the rock, Philly rock and all that. And then um, mm-hmm. here you come with your keyboard and your and your performance. And you just, it was morning drive. It was first thing in the morning and you just lit it up. And I just knew that you were going to be special And let's talk a little bit about Ordinary People, because, you know, your first single was a a great single, was a great introduction, and you did an awesome job promoting it. But Ordinary People really, like, put you on the map. That was a song that just, like, people just was like, whoa, who is this guy? And talk about your life at that time. What, What was that like for you?
2: Well, we knew that it was special just because even when we put Used to Love You out, a lot of the samplers were out in the public and on the sampler we did a full version of used to love you full version of ordinary people and then snippets of like three other songs from the album and radio stations just started to play ordinary people off the sampler uh before we were even promoting it and so you could tell it was like it was catching and you know like you said this the radio was sounding like it was sounding and then my song would be just me on the piano,, uh, yeah. and just stop the radio, basically like yo this this is completely different from everything else, and it just really grabbed people's attention because I think it sounded so different, and then once people listened to the lyric, they just felt like they could really relate to that lyric, and then once you listen to the whole album, you know it's about a journey, you know, about you know cheating, going through conflict with your um, significant other and starting to figure out you know how to work through those issues and you know resolve that commitment somehow and um so that's what the album arc was like and ordinary people was right in the middle of that and kind of the signature song that tied it all together you know and i think so many people could relate to it and then when it took off that's when i knew like oh my life had changed because I sang it at the BT Awards with Stevie Wonder. I uh got a call from Oprah and Magic in the same day, uh, both asking wow. me to play at events uh at their houses, two different events. Just happened to get called on the same day by both of them. When when anybody asked me how'd I know I was famous, that's how, that's the, that was the day I knew. <laughs> and you fit you fit both of them in? Yes, indeed. <laughs> I did. Yeah, you can't <laughs> and, fit uh, no
1: Oprah and Magic. You, you can't to <laughs> no them.
2: And, then, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and the other way you know is the airport test. It's like when you walk into the airport, do people recognize you, know who you are? Right. And, you know, what song do they sing back to you? So at that time, it was Ordinary People. Throughout yeah. my career, it's been, you know, like Green Light or it's been All of Me or it's been different songs. Yeah. But at the beginning, of course, it was Ordinary People. So, yeah, that it just took me from, you know, being somebody to look out for somebody that was you know supporting kanye somebody that was you know collaborating with all these other artists took me from there to you know really being a a soul artist to reckon with because of the success of that song and it really just helped lay the foundation for everything we're doing now
1: yeah but you you know to take that formula like i thought save uh save room was that Mm it that was another one that was just different like yeah it was just, it just you went, you always went against the grain. You yeah. never, but you never sounded like anybody. I mean, there's never been a moment. And then Greenlight was like, then you was like, okay, don't forget, I'm like a hip hop kid too, right? For so then you <laughs> the Greenlight, which was, you know, Andre 3000. Yeah. How did that collab come about? Because that was a great song.
2: Well, I wrote this song. This guy named Rick Knowles, but then I played it for my A and R KP. And he and um, this other producer named Malay started working on it and just really made the beat even better. And then KP came up during the whole LaFace era. And he's from Atlanta. And he was, you know, A&R for OutKast and Usher. And he works with Pharrell now. And, you know, he, uh, he's just always been, you know, in the mix, always had a great ear. And particularly with that whole Atlanta crew during the LaFace era, he was just really close to so many of those artists. And um he was like, We gotta get Andre on here. So he played it for Andre and got him on there. And uh Andre just awesome. murdered it. And yeah. you gotta remember, like Andre wasn't really doing nothing with other wow. artists. He wasn't he wasn't making records, he wasn't playing live. And to get him on any record was a coup, man. It's like, like wow, how'd you get Andre on your record? I didn't, I still have never performed that song live with him once, but just having him on there just, just lit it up and just added so much energy. And a lot of the ideas for the video even um, came from him. So just having him involved just made that record so much better. Man, I was so lucky to have him. <laughs>
1: And you also have a Kindred Spirit with uh, Rick Ross, too. There's a record you guys have made together.
2: Well, we have one on my new album, too. It's uh, the first song on the album. It's called Round. And we have quite a few we've done together. Magnificent, I think, was the first one. I love Magnificent. Yeah, Uh that was the first one. But we've done something on most of his projects. And then he's been on two of mine now. And uh, I think we've done some stuff on college projects, too. So. Yeah, we love working together his voice and my voice, the beats we love that intersect. It really works well together.
1: Yeah, how did that come about? Was he like a fan or how did you get I believe
2: so. Is- I think actually the first time he did something was he did a remix of his own on his own like without even reaching out to me. He did a remix of Green Light. And then I think I think Khalid was his A&R at that time too. Uh the whole Def Jam South thing. Yeah. So eventually he sent me the beat and the rap that he had done for magnificent and it was one of those justice league beats those classic you know rick ross beats and uh me and devon actually the guy that i I said was my roommate that's kanye's cousin me and devon wrote the uh hook for it together sent it back to him he loved it and that was that we had a record and, and, you know, we've made a bunch of records since then.
1: And then of course, on your, your second album, all, uh, not your second album, but a few albums later, you have all of me, which is like, yeah, that was on love
2: in the future. That came out in 2013. And so by that time, this is still when I'm signed to good music, Kanye is executive producing the album. I'm about to get married. So a lot of the album is kind of about, you know, contemplating that future with somebody and the album of course called love in the future. And I um, wrote all of me with this guy named Toby Gad. We just sat at a piano and wrote it together. The first time I ever sang it live was at my wedding. We shot the video at the, during that week at Lake Como where we got married in Italy and it became obviously my biggest song and one of the biggest songs in history. It's, you know, it's like, on like fourteen times platinum and you know, streamed like probably six or seven billion times on its own. Have you um, been asked
1: to perform that at people's weddings? Have you performed it at Oh yeah. Weddings?
2: I mean, I get hired to play people's weddings. I'm I'm not cheap, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh I do, I do sometimes and, and and of course, you know, without me even being hired, you know, I, I I hear from people all the time that play it at their weddings or have someone play it or have the string player play it or whatever it is. And it's just become, you know, one of those songs that just you got to be grateful for because whenever you make a song that changes your life and so many other people's lives so much, it's a blessing and uh, I'm grateful. So you never get tired of
1: performing it or hearing it after a while? I really
2: don't. I really don't get tired of playing it. If you come to my Vegas show, we we do it during the encore and you just feel just that love in the room because I let the crowd sing like half the time anyway. And uh, man it's just nice to have something that means so much to so many people that the whole world knows a lyric to, And that's special.
1: Amazing, man. Like not many artists get a chance to, you know, have a song like that. That's just, you know, just it's out there. It's like, you know, it's like to the day you're no longer on the earth, bro. Right?
2: Yeah. It's so forever.
1: Much- oh, that, that record right there.
2: Yeah, It's um, forever. And the thing about being a musician is everything we make is forever because you know, it's going to outlive us, but certain songs just have that enduring quality. Whenever you have one of those that is timeless and enduring like that, it's special. And I, I aim for that, you know, I aim for timeless. I aim for things that will endure. That's what hopefully I've done with this new album legend.
1: Let's talk about it, man. You know, this is another project. Talk about the create, cause you've been, the pandemic happened. And I got to tell you this too, about, I really admire that you share so much of how you feel about what's happening in the world. A lot of artists are afraid to do that, but talk a little bit about this new album.
2: So it's a double album. We were extremely productive and creative during the pandemic. I think you're seeing that with a lot of your favorite artists. Like they're putting out some heat right now because we, we weren't on tour for a long time and we really had time to create. And if you, we're feeling inspired during that time you could be really productive and you know that's why Beyonce's album is so dope that's why Kendrick's album is so dope you know everybody had time to be home and 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 you know create and so that's what I did and we made some heat i was so excited and and feeling so creative during that time and legend is the result of all that i work with some amazing people got some great guests on the album uh, Rick Ross, Jasmine Sullivan, Money Long, um, Rhapsody, Janae Aiko and Ty Dolla Sign, Amber Mark, Free Nationals, just some great collaborators, a lot of people behind the scenes. Pink Sweats wrote three songs with me, him and his brother. Oh, Philly.
1: That's a Philly guy right from
2: there. From Philly. Jasmine's from Philly. Pink Sweats yeah. is from Philly. Most of my band's from Philly. There's always a lot of Philly love uh, in my music. I executive produced it with Ryan Tedder, who is just a prolific and talented producer and writer and artist. And we just kept bringing in some of our favorite people to work with and trying to make some beautiful music. You've heard a a few songs as singles, but now the whole album is out. And I'm so happy it's out. I love hearing people's responses to it. I love seeing people connect to the music. And I'm so proud of the work we did. I'm just happy everyone can listen to it now.
1: No, that's great, man. Listen, it's always good when John legend makes music because music makes people feel good. <laughs> and we need a lot of feel good right now because the world.
2: Yeah. Is-
1: yeah. So the new album is out. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John legend. Thank you so much, man. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to uh, have you on the backstory podcast and, Thank you for sharing all these
2: great stories about your songs. I'm so grateful to be with you. We've known each other a long time, and I appreciate all your support over the years, and I'm excited to talk to you today. Grateful for you, brother.
1: Coming up on the next Backstory podcast, producer, label executive, move maker, Irv Gotti. The first day I started working at Def Jam, I tried to sign DMX, and they laughed at me. It was like, he's barking, Gotti. Come on, stop. You serious? And after, like, say, a month of me trying to sign DMX and then not letting me sign DMX, I quit. The Backstory Podcast with Kobe Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated, Reach Media, Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Kobe Kolb, edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC on Instagram. Get the Backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For Sales and Corporate Partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.